Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 25th, the calm before the storm. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton as we discuss a few topics today ranging from our expectations for the Jackson Hole meetings to a potential shakeup at the Fed come fall and what it may mean for credit and swap spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, I think the term summer markets is never more applicable than it has been these past couple weeks now, with issuance falling off a cliff and secondary market volumes extremely, extremely light, as we'd expect, of course, for the time of the year. Just seems like everything's in a holding pattern, and that includes credit spreads. Yeah, credit spreads since the middle of July have traded in a pretty tight range. So in the ICE BAML index, IG index spreads have been between 91 and 95 basis points for the better part of the last six weeks or so. You alluded to the light volumes in secondary. Last week, we saw the lightest Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday volumes that we've seen all year. Wednesday was the second lightest for any Wednesday of the year, and Friday was the third lightest Friday for this year. So yeah, we're in very much of a holding pattern in credit spreads. There's just little conviction, and the market is, I think, waiting for this Jackson Hole meeting. Yeah, so lethargy obviously makes sense, particularly ahead of the Jackson Hole meeting. But I I do want to highlight that because even though we didn't see spreads move much last week, there was at least one trend I thought worth noting coming from last week's price action. And that's that spreads did appear to be reacting to some news around tapering. And if true, that comes as a surprise to us, right? Because our expectation was the tapering was pretty much priced in and that really any changes to timing or pace of tapering, unless they were truly drastic, we didn't think it would matter much. Nevertheless, last week, if you looked at the major moves in spreads, we saw widening last week in the middle of the week that coincided almost perfectly with the release of the FOMC minutes that read as a bit more hawkish, suggesting the potential for even a September announcement and tapering. And then Friday, we had commentary from traditionally a hawk, Fed President Kaplan, who implied that the timeline for tapering could be pushed out as a result of the Delta variant and some renewed fears of weakness. And then we saw credit spreads trade firmly, probably the most firmly they did all week last week on Friday, right after Kaplan's comments, which came as a deviation from sort of the parade of Fed speakers in the preceding weeks that were all pointing to tapering being on schedule here. So it did seem like the market was reacting to tapering news. And, you know, again, to hammer home the point and that being surprising, particularly with the Fed taking the important step this time of explicitly divorcing the timeline for tapering from the timeline for hiking, they've said, doesn't matter when we start tapering asset purchases, it has absolutely no impact on the timeline for liftoff. And yet, it does seem like we're seeing spreads react. Dan, what's your read on that? Yeah, I agree. It's somewhat surprising that we've seen a reaction in markets around this talk about tapering. Now, I don't want to make too much of an issue out of just a basis point or two of narrowing and widening in credit spreads, but it is somewhat surprising. 
I think if we were to see the tapering timeline delayed by a month or let's call it a meeting, a month and a half, maybe that is worth about a basis point in credit spreads. It still doesn't change my view that we're not going to get anything resembling the backup we saw in credit spreads around the taper tantrum in 2013. But it is moderately surprising that the timing of tapering, whether it came in September or now it's looking more likely that an announcement is going to come in November, that it does matter somewhat for credit investors. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. I'm not convinced that this is a tapering thing. I think it could just be coincidental. But the timing of these moves is suspicious enough to at least highlight it because it could mean that there might be some more volatility later this week surrounding the Jackson Hole meetings than we would have thought heading into it. So I think maybe it's worth spending just a couple minutes here talking about Jackson Hole and what our expectations are for it. And I guess we have to start with what the market is expecting from Jackson Hole because it does seem like the consensus that has bubbled to the surface here in the past week is that Jackson Hole is going to be Mostly a non-event. It seems that we've all taken on this attitude that the Fed does not want to front run the September FOMC meeting, which happens on September 22nd. So you have a pretty big window there. But still, apparently the Fed does not want to take away from the September FOMC. So people expecting nothing. But I would say to the extent that people are expecting anything, they're likely expecting more dovishness. Yeah, I agree. I think the main surprise that we could get from Jackson Hole would be some guidance that a tapering announcement can come in September. So you mentioned the September 22nd FOMC meeting. Now, the blackout period typically begins about 10 days before that. So we would likely need to see some guidance coming between now and call it September 12th or so, indicating that the Fed is on track to announce tapering in September, because I don't think it's been messaged nearly enough yet, and it would probably spook markets if it wasn't really telegraphed at the Jackson Hole meetings this week or shortly thereafter. So my base case is that Chair Powell and other Fed speakers this week will reiterate what they've been saying at and since the July FOMC meeting, which is that it's likely that a taper announcement is coming this year, but probably not at the September meeting. Yeah, I'm with you that if the Fed were to actually taper in September, it would need to be messaged at Jackson Hole for sure. And I don't think that's going to happen. So if we look at the balance of risk coming out of Jackson Hole, if we accept that the market is seemingly more sensitive to tapering than we thought... It seems like what we're saying for Jackson Hole is that we're in alignment with the market. This isn't going to be a big deal. I don't think the Fed is going to take any drastic measures and push tapering off into, say, early 2022 or something like that. So if the base case is that the Fed's just going to keep the timeline for November or December intact, I think that's what's going to happen. I guess if we had to pick a risk to the meeting, like what's more likely, spreads narrower or widen coming off the meeting? I personally feel like it's widening. I don't see a scenario where the Fed is going to end up being more dovish than the market expects. I don't think there's any chance the Fed is going to take 2021 out of the timeline for tapering. So if that's a 0% chance, well, I don't think there's much chance they message September. I think it's greater than 0%. So I would say the risk from the Jacksonville meeting is toward wider spreads, but that said, I don't expect much reaction. Where do you fall? Yeah, if we're taking unchanged out of the equation, then I think it's more likely that spreads move wider on the back of Jackson Hole. I think the only real risk to spreads moving narrower would be if the Fed really played up the threat of the Delta variant and what it implied for economic growth and the necessity of continued monetary accommodation. But even now that I mentioned that, that scenario could cause underperformance in risk assets just through the negative growth outlook that would ensue. But I don't think that's likely. I think if spreads were to react significantly, I think it would be in response to messaging that a September taper is still a 
very likely outcome from the meeting. Yeah, okay. Well, it sounds like we're in agreement there. And before moving away from the FOMC, Dan, I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about some potential changes coming up for the Fed in the months ahead. None larger, of course, than the chair of the FOMC himself, Jerome Powell's term, scheduled to end in February of 2022. Of course, he's up for another term, if that's the direction that the administration goes. Dan, what's your read on Powell so far? I think as of about a month ago, I would have given him probably something like 50% odds of being reappointed. More recently, it seems like things have pointed towards a reappointment for Chair Powell. He's gotten an endorsement from Treasury Secretary Yellen, which I think is not necessarily surprising, but the fact that she reportedly did opine on his reappointment certainly bodes well for him. So I would expect that he's going to be reappointed, although it certainly isn't a foregone conclusion at this point. Either way, Chair Powell is a pretty dovish Fed chair. I think if he were to be replaced, it would be by another dove. Likely, Lael Brainerd is the front runner for that post if he does not get reappointed. That's the way I've been approaching it, really, is that whether or not Powell returns, I don't think this storyline is going to have much of an impact to financial markets. Because like you said, if Powell's out, it will be another dove. There's not going to be some new chairman that comes in and immediately reverses course to something much more hawkish. So from where I was sitting, regardless of the chairman, the path of monetary policy was not likely to change. I guess if forced to pick, I think I would say that a Powell renomination makes the most sense, particularly with you know the relationship that we at least think he has with Janet Yellen and her support for him. But I think for the market's perspective, it doesn't really matter too much either way. It was certainly worth talking about. But I do want to talk about something that I think matters potentially a lot more, which is the end of Randall Quarles' term as vice chair of supervision. We know that that post is obviously the one that oversees regulation from the Fed's perspective. And regulation is set to be a very important storyline going forward. I can think of just off the top of my head, three major storylines on the regulation front that could be coming in the next 12 months, and maybe arguably could have happened already, were it not for the lame duck status of Quarles and how that may impact whether or not to push through regulation at this point. But those three things are the SLR, the potential for increased regulation or oversight over non-bank financial intermediaries, you know, quote unquote shadow banks. That one's a bit more complicated because, you know, there is limits to the Fed oversight there. So you have coordination with FSOC and things like that. But I still would think that the Fed and particularly the vice chair of supervision is heavily involved in those conversations. And the third one is the potential for more money market reform, which we've obviously heard a lot about. All three of these things the Fed has talked about a lot in the press conferences following FOMC meetings for the past year. So, Regulation's coming, and we're going to have a new vice chair of supervision. I think we know that at this point. So, Dan, has the end of Quarles' term entered into your market outlook at all? Or I guess even more importantly, do you think that the market has been paying attention to it? It doesn't seem like it's been discussed as much as I would expect it to be. Quarles' term ends on October 13th of this year. So that's pretty near-term consideration, at least the way that I'm thinking about it. He could, of course, stay on the Fed board if he so chose, but his term as the vice chair for supervision ends in just about seven weeks. So we will see a change in the regulatory environment, even if that's going to be a longer-term consideration, something that happens gradually after his term ends. Eventually, once Biden has a vice chair for supervision in place, we're going to see some more hawkish regulation. So I think with respect to SLR, it makes it less likely that we're going to see something more bank-friendly that excludes treasuries from the denominator of the ratio if we see a change to that rule at all. 
money market reform. I think it's very likely that something a little bit more stringent becomes proposed with the new chair for supervision. But maybe the reason that this hasn't been you know, more at the forefront of, of market discussions is just because it's going to be a longer term process and something that is more 2022, even 2023 story. I was going to say the same thing. It's not something that's going to uh, suddenly October 14th. Now we're going to have a bunch of new regulation. It's a very long term storyline, but I think it is one that we have to pay close attention to because I think, you know, you look at the standard rulemaking process for regulation at the Fed. Typically, there's a notice for proposed rulemaking, which is released for comment. The comment period would then be at least 30 days, often longer than that. Then there is a lag where the Fed has to digest the market's comments before a final rule is issued. Well, clearly, if that's a timeline for a new Fed rulemaking of regulation that's going to take, you know, three months, probably at least at a minimum, with Quarles' term ending in October, that's probably been, you know, a constraint on any regulation being passed for arguably months now as we just await a new vice chair of supervision. So it's still going to take a long time, but I agree with you that once Biden installs a new vice chair of supervision, there is some regulatory things that need to happen, and there is arguably going to be a more hawkish slant to it. I think what you said about the SLR hit the nail right on the head. It won't be as bank-friendly. We've already heard some of the more Democratic members of Congress criticizing the Fed back in the March cycle where the SLR temporary exemption expired. We saw some criticism coming the Fed's way from those senators talking about it almost as a quote-unquote bank bailout. And I don't agree with that, but you know, someone that Biden appoints would ostensibly not favor such a broad-sweeping exemption for banks. Maybe it just comes into reserves at that point. And if we get a weaker SLR, that definitely removes some of our rationale that was behind the idea that swap spreads would widen as a result of the SLR. And then I think you also alluded to money market reform, and that's a big one. I think money market reform is almost definitely coming. The Fed has you know, seemingly pointed the finger at the money markets, not just for what happened in 2008, but also the liquidity event of 2020. Money markets are again shouldering at least some of the blame, even if not as much as happened in the financial crisis. And we can just riff on this for a second, but I think the money market reform risk is pretty significant out there. I mean, we could be looking at the potential end of prime funds or prime funds, at least as we know them right now, which has obvious ramifications for things like unsecured wholesale funding for banks, for LIBOR potentially, to the extent that LIBOR is still a rate that measures bank funding, we would expect that to go up and see LIBOR OIS spreads increase, you know, arguably significantly, which would certainly be a widener for front-end swap spreads. Another thing talking about the transition away from LIBOR is, you know, the selection between Bisbee and SOFR. Well, Bisbee is still reliant on those transactions. If we see prime funds go away, then we have Bisbee not really based on anything. So that's a very, very key risk for Bisbee there that could lead to some market participants not really wanting to adopt it. I mean, it does seem like enthusiasm for Bisbee has been dropping here recently. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think given that Bisbee, like LIBOR, is really predicated upon heavy, unsecured funding volumes, any changes in regulations as they relate to money market funds or prime funds specifically could pose a real structural threat to Bisbee as a rate and certainly as it relates to becoming a replacement for LIBOR. Well, Dan, we've sort of been all over the place today. I, you know, I think with thin markets and not a lot going on, we got a chance to talk about some of these broader themes, changes at the FOMC and stuff like that. The title of today's episode was The Calm Before the Storm. And, and the idea behind that was that 
we had calm markets now before the storm of what's going to be September supply. We only got to whatever minute it is now, 15 plus, before we talked about that. We won't get into depth on it today. That will be the focus of both our written weekly on Friday, and we will talk about it in detail next Wednesday on our podcast edition, looking at our expectations for September supply. So that was the idea, the calm before the storm, the storm being supply. We all know September is going to be quite heavy, and, and we expect some more interesting storylines to start emerging from the market in that time frame. But I guess high level for today, we can wrap it up just by saying, I think our view on the market for people that listen to us or read our, our written work, it's not really changed. We were expecting for a long time a technically driven widening in July and August, and we've gotten that. I guess the question for you, Dan, is has this been a technical move or is there more underneath it? Yeah, I think it's been partly technical and it's also been partly a reflection of a reversal of some of the reopening trade. So we looked at the sectoral breakdown of credit spreads since the end of Q2. And the end of Q2 is when spreads hit their cyclical lows of about 80 basis points in the Bloomberg Barclays Index. Since then, spreads are about eight basis points wider. And this widening has been led by some of the higher beta sectors. So for instance, leisure is the most exposed to a reemergence of COVID lockdowns. Leisure is out 19 basis points since the end of June, far and away the worst performing sector. And then we have insurance services, financial services. Those are all pretty insulated from increased restrictions. Those have outperformed the broad index. But there's been a lot of exceptions to this reversal of the reopening trade. For instance, you have basic industry, which is really predicated upon production, manufacturing, raw materials, things that are typically well correlated with economic reopening. That's only out five basis points since the beginning of the quarter. It's one of the better performing sectors in Q3. So just on a whole, there's a positive correlation between sector betas and quarter to date spread changes, but it's far from one to one. The correlation coefficient is about 0.4 which to us suggests that it's largely a technically driven move, even though there is something to be said for a reversal of the reopening trade. Yeah, I think that's really interesting information, Dan. I like that. I still look at it as mostly a technically driven move, but obviously the proliferation of Delta certainly can't be ignored and the underperformance of some of those reopening sectors. But high level, was it enough for you to change your view? We've been calling for spreads in the second half of the year to return to historically low levels, maybe make new historical lows. Is that still your view? Yeah, I think spreads are going to continue to test historical lows. I'm still looking for about mid-70s in the Bloomberg Barclays Index, so right around the historical lows. I'm not sure that we'll be able to break through those this year, and I think as we move into 2022, spreads are likely to find some headwinds with respect to Fed policy changing, or at least expectations of this change in Fed policy. So I think mid-70s are just around historical lows is what I'm targeting for the end of the year, and then maybe some headwinds thereafter. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think 75 is the low we've observed on the index in its history. I think that's a fair target for the end of the year. And uh, obviously, we'll see come September with more liquidity, how that view evolves. So we're expecting the return of liquidity to result in spreads coming back narrower again, you know, the reach for yield to be reignited or there would be more demand even despite the wider supply. But we'll start to get that hypothesis tested here pretty soon. I'm personally looking forward to it. Uh, we need some more issuance, huh, Dan? Yeah, we do. I'm, I, for one, am ready for September. All right, everyone. Uh, enjoy the rest of the, the summer lightness here. And uh, we'll be back next week with our uh, forecast for corporate necessary supply come September. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at 
bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 